This afternoon, we will be continuing our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. And today, we'll be looking, as is our custom, at one more doctrine of the Christian Church. Today, we'll be looking at what we believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church, which you can find in Lord's Day 21 on page 535 of your books of praise. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his spirit and word in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, many people today don't really know what the church is. They don't know why we gather in the way we do. In fact, I would dare say that that might even be true for some of us who are members here. The question, how did I end up here, might rise up. For some of you, it may be force of habit. Your grandparents went to church, your parents went to church, and you went to church as a young person. And now you yourselves are taking your kids to church. For others, it's just something you do to keep those around you happy. You may not necessarily believe, but why rock the boat? You know the consequences that come with not going to church. Besides, the church is a great way to meet up with people that you haven't met in a while. And in that way, it becomes more of a social club where everyone happens to sit down and hear a message based on mutual values. And then you meet together after and get a chance to catch up. For others, it is a chance to gather together for worship with other believers It's a highlight to your week because you feel genuinely rested and rejuvenated after having taken the day to honor God. But even for you, you may have the question, what exactly church is? We speak of going to church, so is it the church building? But if that's the case, what does it mean when we hear Christ say, on this rock, I will build my church? Today, let's take a look at the question, at the statement, a church chosen to everlasting life. 
And we will see, first of all, the foundation of this church, and secondly, the gathering in of this church. In our passage in Matthew 16, we read, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. In talking about the church, it's important to note the word that Christ uses. The original Greek word for church is ecclesia. The way that this has been translated into English is, of course, church. But its root has a much deeper meaning than that. The root of this word refers to the idea of being called, being called or invited. Those who are members of a church are called by God to gather together as its body. But how does this play into our lives today? It gives us two things to note with regards to the church. Our passage that we read in Matthew 16 gives us two things to note. The first that we can note is that Christ says, on this rock I'll build my church. The word rock or Greek word Petra here is a wordplay on Peter's name, Petros. Christ is saying that you, I say to you that you are Petros and on this Petra I will build my church. Christ is tightly tying together Peter and his confession. The rock that he refers to is Peter's confession that had come a few verses prior to this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This truth was the rock that was the foundation of the church. Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ was an important title. He was named Christ, the anointed one, or the Messiah. He was recognized as the anointed one, the anointed head over an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting priesthood. He would reign forever and be the intermediary, the advocate before the Father between men and God. It meant that the church was based on the truth of who Christ is and what he does. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins. He is the one who named himself the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no other name under heaven under which we can be saved. Whether you are a veteran Christian here, or this is your first time inside the door of a church, this reality is the same for you. There's no levels, no special things that super-Christians do. All must follow the same path and take the same steps. To be right with God, you need to come before him in the name of Jesus, this Jesus, the Anointed One, the Christ. You need to recognize the depth of your sin and come to an awareness of how great the gap between you and God is. You must confess your sins before him, recognizing that you deserve nothing and showing genuine sorrow and repentance. You need to turn away from sin, not only leaving it behind but fleeing from it, running away as fast as your feet will carry you and to run to the cross to Jesus Christ, who alone can save you. That is what you confess when you place your foundation on this rock, 
on this cornerstone, the confession of Jesus as the Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. The second thing we can notice about this passage has us coming back to the word ecclesia that we looked at earlier. Remember what its root was? It was to be called or invited. Now, to make what is meant by this idea of calling a bit more clear, I want to draw in another passage. Let's turn together for a moment to Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 48. You'll be able to find that on page 1271 of your pew Bible. There we read, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, so what's just happened here? Paul has been preaching to a crowd in modern-day Pisidian Antioch. He's been preaching in a synagogue there. And after the service is over, he himself remains behind. The Jews leave, but there are Gentiles, God-fearers, who stay behind in the synagogue. And they approach Paul to ask him a little bit more, to learn a little bit more about what he has to say. They, in particular, ask Paul to return. And when the Jews saw the success of what happened to Paul, they grew jealous. And many ended up opposing him. Now, in response to this rejection, Paul told them that while his message was primarily for the Jews, while he first came to the Jews... They were not his only responsibility. Since they rejected the good news of the gospel, his responsibility was to move beyond them, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to gather them in as well. The Gentiles rejoiced at this. And as we read, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Note the use of the words, as many as were appointed This is a passive phrase, not an active one. No matter how you look at this phrase, there is no possible way to attribute any of it in any part to the effort of man. There is only one conclusion that can be drawn from this, that God has chosen his people and that God is the one who calls them. God is the one who draws them in and he will bring them in. In. Now, on hearing this, some people get mad inside. They say, How is that fair? They look at that passage that we read in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, that calls the people in the church, those who have been chosen. That calls the elect, those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. They look at that and they say, how is that fair? What about all those poor people whom God doesn't choose? Well, that's a question that we need to face, isn't it? In looking at this, what about those other people? 
Is it somehow God's fault that they don't believe? There is a helpful passage in the Canons of Dort which deals with this. The Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 1. Let's turn to that for a moment. Page 565 of your books of praise. This article gives the basic position of all mankind, and it also gives the scripture passages that back it up. Here we read, Since all men have sinned in Adam, lie underneath the curse, and deserve eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the whole human race in sin and under the curse, and to condemn it on account of its sin. According to the words of the apostles, so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. What would most people say in response to this? What would they say in response to this gospel message that begins with us deserving death. The wages of sin is death. All who that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the whole world is under the wrath of God. Are you for real? You really think I'm going to hell for what I'm doing? I'm not a perfect person, but I'm not that bad. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, that's an issue that needs to be dealt with. Are you a member of God's chosen on the basis of what you have done? Are you going to heaven on the basis of your own works? Because that's the background behind that kind of a question. I don't think I've been that bad Sure, I've done a few things that are wrong, but I don't think I'm that bad. The difficulty is, if you're going to try to take this approach, you're going to run into some serious problems. And if, whether you need to use this in sharing the gospel, or whether you use this in applying it to your own life, the reality is true either way. One evangelist put it, in this way while street preaching. Someone asked him this question, are you for real? You really think I'm going to hell for this? He got them to take a few steps back to look at themselves from an objective point of view. He says, have you ever told a lie? Well, yes. All right, what do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. Okay. Have you ever stolen something? Probably, yeah. And what do you call someone who steals things? A thief? Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? Well, that's human nature, isn't it? Perhaps. But God has said it's wrong. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that if somebody looks at a woman lustfully, he is an adulterer at heart. 
Okay, he says to this person, so by your own confession, you are a lying thief and an adulterer. Now, if God comes before you on the day of judgment, and he is a righteous and perfect judge, if God is a holy God who can't even stand the sight of sin, where should he send you? This person responded, hell, I suppose. But then everybody's in trouble, aren't they? Yes, he says. That's exactly the point. And that is exactly the point, isn't it? That's exactly the point that this article in the Canons of Dort is getting at. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We read in Psalm 51 verse 5 that we were sinful from the time that we were conceived. This sin is with us throughout our lives and our debt before God constantly grows. We deserve to be convicted, each and every one of us. We all deserve hell. God is just. If he let you off scot-free, he wouldn't be just. Think about it if you were facing a Canadian judge. This Canadian judge said, oh, well, you know what? I think that just because I'm feeling nice today, I think I'll have mercy on you. Yeah, you stole something. Yeah, you committed murder. But you know what? Just to show mercy to you, I'm going to let you off scot-free. We would say that judge is not just. We would be angry with that. That wouldn't be true mercy. People would still be affected. The crime is still there. But God shows his mercy in this. While we were still sinners, God sent his son to live the perfect life that we could never live. God did carry out his justice. He did carry out the justice that our sins deserve. But his wrath, that heavy wrath, was laid on his son. And that perfect life that his son lived, that was imputed to those who believe. That means it was attributed to them. So the wrath of God was still carried out. The sins were still paid for. But God showed his mercy by taking his son's perfect life and attributing it to those who believe. So when we frame it in this way, when we look at it in this way, we don't ask ourselves, how is it that God doesn't take everybody into heaven? No, we ask ourselves, how is it that God takes anybody up into heaven? Why does God choose anyone? We should stand in awe about the fact that what we read in our catechism in this Lord's Day happens at all. This question and answer, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life. But he'll graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. 
That is the good news that we can point each other to. That's the good news that you can point your friends and neighbors to. Yes, we are all sinners. Yes, we all deserve the wrath of God. But we have someone on whom we can rely. We're not chosen because of our personal merit. We're chosen on the basis of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. We are chosen on the basis of the mercy of God. As we saw before, it's Jesus Christ who is the bedrock. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the church. As the canons of Dort go on to say in chapter 1, article 7, God, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will, out of mere grace, chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of specific persons, neither better nor more worthy than others, but involved together with them in a common misery. That's the foundation, again, of our natural state. As it is written, God chose us in Christ. And there's the mercy, there's the grace. God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, pointing to Ephesians 1, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. He predestined us before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. There is no other foundation than that. No other bedrock than Christ. Nothing on which we can depend on besides that. What a joy and relief this is. We know that every day we do sin. Every day we do fall short. But we also recognize that to have a God who isn't just or to suggest that we all need to work out our salvation is unthinkable. Because that would mean disaster for all of us. That would be a great burden. But we rejoice. We take comfort in the fact that we do have a God who has chosen his people. We place our trust in the one who has taken care of it. This brings us to our second point. At this point, some people will hesitate. Perhaps they can accept that God does the choosing. However, often they have two reasons that they don't think that, that they aren't comfortable with this. The first reason is that they can think, oh, I can do better than God. In pride, they stand up and say, God, you've done this, but I could have done it differently. I would have shown more mercy. And to those, we can look at Romans 9. In response to that, we can look at Romans 9. Page 1302. 
verse 18. Romans 9, verse 18. Therefore, he, God, has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, and this is the response that's given, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? He says here, to those who ask in this prideful way, I could have done better. I could have done it right. God, you clearly made a mistake here. He says, who are you, O man, that you reply to God? Who are you to question what God has done? He is God. And if he decides to make some vessels for wrath, to make his power known, that is completely within his right. Especially seeing where we all come from, where we all stand. That's where we deserve to be. He is God. And who are we to question him? Second question Second point is, what if God, desiring to make his wrath and to, make his, to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory for his vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Again, we can see that prepared beforehand for glory. It's his right to choose some to prepare them for glory. Paul's saying, how do you dare question God's right when we have all sinned, when we are all in rebellion, to question his right to leave some in that state and to question his right to choose whom he wills to save. But there is a second reason for this hesitation there are others who have a genuine fear, a genuine worry that comes alongside the doctrine of election, of God choosing his own. They are fearful that perhaps they haven't been chosen. Perhaps as God is gathering in his people, he'll pass them over. Now there's two things that I want to point out with regards to this. This is a genuine concern. First, we must understand that this doctrine was put in our place for our comfort. This doctrine does indeed point to our inability. It does give God all of the glory and we find that in scripture. But this doctrine this doctrine also points out our faithlessness. 
But what this doctrine does, in addition to this, is point out God's faithfulness. It points out God's care, God's love, that when he has chosen his people, he is behind them all the way. He carries them all the way. They are not able to rely on themselves, but they have God. And they are completely dependent on him. But that's okay, because he is the one who completely supplies all the grace necessary. That is the comfort that we're shown in this. At the end of the day, it makes it much more comforting, doesn't it? Because we as human beings, we know we're fickle. We know that we can easily be swayed one way or the other. If we were to rest on our own faithfulness, there would be reason to fear. But when we see that God is at work behind the scenes, from eternity, then we can trust in him. As Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 6, we can trust, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, what about our fear in relation to this? When we see God's election from our earthly perspective, then it can be a frightening thing. But when we step back and see it from God's perspective, we can recognize that those whom God has chosen, those whom God has not chosen, are not people who say, Lord, please, please choose me. Take me to be with you. And God arbitrarily says, I don't think so. No, people whom God does not choose do not seek after God. They are actively in rebellion against God. They not only do not seek to be a part of his gathering in work, but they actively resent it and seek to escape it. As this is the case, this doctrine calls us to lift our eyes from ourselves and to turn them to Christ and his gathering work. It's he who gathers, defends, and preserves his church, not we. We rely on his faithfulness to carry on our work, to carry on this work in us to the day of completion in contrast with our own faithlessness. The second thing that we need to realize with regards to this is that we are not called to pry into the secret things of God. Whom God has chosen with regards to election, that is his knowledge. He himself knows that from eternity. We ourselves don't look at our friends, our neighbors, and see this stamp on their foreheads that says this person is elect. And so we are called, when we are looking at this doctrine, when we are looking at this truth that is found in Scripture, to look at it from the perspective of God and to show, yes, it's God from beginning to end. 
having come to that realization that it's in God's hand, we are to turn our minds from eternity then to the present. Instead of focusing on what God has hidden, namely who is elect, we are to focus on what God has revealed. The canons point out that we are to focus with spiritual joy and holy delight on the unfailing fruits of election pointed out in the word of God, such as true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for sins, and hunger and thirst for righteousness. These things don't come naturally to one who is in active rebellion against God. But when they do come, when this hunger and thirst for righteousness does come, when this childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for sins, when this does come, it's all the Spirit of God. That is what we can see with regards to the fruit of election. That's we, what we can look to in our lives. That's what God calls us to look to. We are not to step back and try to pry into the mind of God to see who is on that list. No, we are to look at our own lives. Look at the faithfulness of God who has begun work in us to bear fruits. Fruits of repentance. Fruits of godly sorrow. And fruits of a hunger and thirst for righteousness. As Jesus Christ himself said, you will know them by their fruits. It's these things that God works in his chosen ones. And it's these things that he has been working in them right from the beginning of time. Ever since humanity fell into sin, God has been working with them. He has been working them in his people, gathering them together. Already in paradise, we can see this truth, that God has called Adam and Eve to follow him. This gathering continued in those who were described as the sons of God, the faithful line which came from Adam and Eve. God continued to gather their children, Abel, Seth, Enosh. We read in Genesis 4 verse 26 that in this time men began to call on the name of the Lord. This was a fruit that was worked in them by God. Clear battle lines were being drawn. And those who responded with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a hunger and a thirst for God, were the ones whom God had chosen because he worked it in them. We read about how this continues throughout the Old Testament, how time and time again God marked his own and worked faithfulness in them. In the New Testament as well, we read how the Spirit worked in the early church and how he guided and cared for them despite persecution. And finally, in the book of Revelation, we see how Satan continues to pursue the church, seeking to destroy it. And we see how God powerfully intervenes to protect his chosen church for the sake of Christ, his son. Christ is the foundation of the church. He is the reason it exists and thrives at all. He is the one who works the fruits of faith in them. And it's on the basis of him that we continue to be gathered, defended, and preserved by his spirit and word from the beginning of the world 
as we read in Ephesians 1, from the beginning of the world to its end. Hold to that above all. Rest in the assurance of Christ's work. Don't focus on what God has not given you access to, but focus on what he teaches you, what he has given you access to. Believe in Christ. Repent from your sins and see your hunger and thirst for righteousness grow in your lives and rejoice in this irresistible call as he draws you ever nearer to him, gathered in as one of his own. Amen.